I'd like to read this for us. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from, the, from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, what a great, great text. And I think of these words that speak of how you gave us your holy word, how the apostles were eyewitnesses and who heard the voice from heaven, your voice speaking and affirming your son. That's powerful. It's why their lives were changed. It's why they wrote down these things that we could read and study and come to know Jesus ourselves. And so, Father, would you take this word this morning and drive it deep into our hearts that our conviction would grow, our faith would grow, that we would be people of the book, people who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can probably tell that I'm excited about getting to preach on this passage. I think that this is one of the most important texts in all of Scripture because of what it says about the Word of God. You see, one of the questions that many people have when they come to Scripture is the question, how do we know the Bible is true? I mean, there are times when believers wrestle with that. You know, how do we know this is really true or that what we have is what God gave or all these kind of things? You know, seekers ask that question. How do I know I can trust the Bible? Uh, skeptics doubt it, and they ask the question, you know, and, and cast kind of their questions out there because they don't want to believe the Bible is true. And so we're going to look at that topic this morning. And I will freely admit that we could spend a whole weekend conference on this. In fact, uh, we're actually, uh, Jason and I, uh, we've been talking about this, and we're working on scheduling one for next February with Sean McDowell, who's a friend of Jason's. And there is a, a possibility, not a guarantee, there's a possibility that even Josh McDowell might be able to come because the two of them have been working together on some conferences. So we're just, we're working on that, praying about it, but that would be really exciting for our church. As there's so much that comes under this heading of how do we know that the scripture is reliable? You could look at what's called textual criticism. You could look at how the Bible was copied and transmitted from generation to generation. You could look at the number of manuscripts that we have and you would see that there is no document in all of ancient history as well attested as the scripture. You could look at archeological evidence that supports what the Bible says time and time again. You can look at biblical prophecy given and fulfilled. You could look at uh, many different aspects of this issue. But today what we are going to talk about is something that's called the doctrine of inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture. And I've got 
30 minutes, which is way too short to, to address this subject, but we're going to do the best we can. And I want to even narrow it down a little bit. For Peter, the question that he was being asked is how do we know that Jesus is coming again? How do we know Jesus is going to return? I mean, here Peter had been preaching, he had been teaching to the church that there is a day coming in the future when Jesus Christ is going to return. And he will establish his kingdom on earth. He will vanquish his foes. There is a day coming when he will sit as judge. And he will separate the sheep and the goats. And those who loved him and believed in him and followed him will enter into his kingdom. And those who rejected him or, or who denied him or did not live in a way that honored him and they, they turned away from him, they're going to be banished to eternal punishment, everlasting death. You know, and so these matters we talk about are quite serious indeed, aren't they? This separation. But what was going on in Peter's day was that there were false teachers who had come into the church and they were saying, I don't believe that. Jesus isn't coming back. You guys just made that up. You know, that's a myth. Jesus isn't coming back. There's no kingdom. There's no final judgment. You know, what we have here, that's the way it is. And you'll hear that. We'll come to that passage later in chapter 3 when scoffers, mockers will say, hey, where's the Lord? You guys have been saying he's going to come back, and now they'd say for 2,000 years, and it's not going to happen. And you'll hear people today that are critical of the Bible say, you know, the only reason that pastors or church leaders talk about heaven and hell is just really to keep people in line. You know, it's really just to get us to give to the church or to keep people in line in terms of their behavior. None of that's going to happen. But when you look at the lives of the false teachers, what Peter's going to point out is that, you know what? You know what their real motivation was? That these guys were greedy men, they were living in sexual immorality, and they did not want to have a day when they would stand before the Lord. Because if I, you know, don't think that's going to come, then I can live as I please. Because there's no day when I'm going to be accountable to somebody else. And there's a lot of people who want to live like that. They don't want to acknowledge that there is a God, because if there is a God who made us, then we are accountable to him. So how did Peter answer this question? How do we know that the Lord is going to come back? Or for us, how do we know that the Bible is true? Well, there are three things that this text affirms. Number one, we have the word of the apostles, and we see that in verses 16 to 18. And Peter begins here by flatly saying that we did not follow cleverly invented stories. We didn't make this stuff up. The word stories there in Greek is the word mythos. It's the word we get in English, myths. We did not follow cleverly invented myths. Now, I'm sure Peter was well aware of, you know, Greek and Roman mythology. And if you've ever read anything about, you know, Zeus, Jupiter, all those different people in the, or these gods in the um, Roman and Greek pantheon, you understand that they are kind of like human characters made large. And they have all the same flaws that we do. And they have all their different kind of uh, strengths and weaknesses, you might say, just magnified. But when you read the stories and you read that and you read the scripture, you begin to see that there's no, there's no comparison. They're just, they're so different in what they say about their, quote, gods versus the God of the Bible. 
And what Peter goes on to say is not only did we not make this up, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And what we wrote down is what we saw and heard. We wrote down what we saw and heard. Now think about all of the things that they saw Jesus say and do in the three years that they were with him. These are just some examples, and uh, most of these are going to be drawn from Mark, which would be Peter's stories. I mean, when they heard Jesus teach, uh, he taught with authority and not like their scribes. And they had never heard anyone teach like Jesus. Jesus didn't cite references. He didn't quote other people or he didn't say, you know, I think that this is the way it is or we kind of, you know, um, based on what these guys have said, we think this is the right interpretation. No, Jesus comes along and he goes, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And time and time again, he corrected the misunderstandings that men had about the word of God. He spoke with authority. They had life situations like the time when they were in the boat, Jesus is asleep, a storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples wake him up and they go, Lord, we're gonna die. I mean, we're gonna drown, don't you care? Jesus gets up, what's he do? He speaks and the wind and the waves obey him. And they're, they're terrified of Jesus in that sense. Like, who is this? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? They saw him cast out demons, the garrison demoniac, in whom one had a legion of demons. Uh, they saw him raise Jairus' daughter back to life. Uh, the people there on that day, they laughed at Jesus. The mourners that had gathered there, the professional mourners who would come when someone had died, I mean, they knew death she had died, what is Jesus thinking? And they laughed at him to think that he would go in and do anything. And he says, Talitha, arise, get up. And she is restored to life. It was impossible, but Jesus did it. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes on two occasions, once to feed a crowd of 5,000 and another a crowd of 4,000. That's just the men, not the women and the children. He walked on water. In Mark 6, 56, it said all who touched him were healed. People crowded around Jesus. They tried to touch him. All who touched him were healed as the power went out from him. He healed a deaf, mute man in Mark chapter 7, and they said he has done everything well. He restored the sight of a blind man. That was a messianic miracle equivalent to raising the dead. I mean, that was one of those signs that they thought the Messiah would do. I remember on, a, on our trip to Israel, now so many of these miracles took place in Capernaum. And I remember reading that list of miracles that they would have seen in that small village and how Jesus finally said to them in their unbelief, he said, you know, if the miracles that have been done here had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. You've seen some astounding things. And so here are these apostles who have witnessed this. They're writing it down as eyewitnesses. If you had seen Jesus do these things, what would you have said? What would you have done? I mean, wouldn't you have wanted to tell people? If it was today in our world, you know, CNN, NBC, they'd be all over this. They'd want to, you know, have the cameras rolling and follow this. So well, they didn't have that back then. 
But they had people who saw and heard and who wrote it down. And in the historical record, nobody disputed that Jesus was a miracle worker. But the one event that stood out to Peter in defending his teaching on the second coming was the transfiguration. It's interesting to me in this passage when he's being questioned about how do we know these things are true, he doesn't talk about the resurrection, could have, doesn't talk about other events in Jesus' life that he could have, but he talks about the transfiguration. Why was that? Because the transfiguration of Christ foreshadows his second coming, the coming of his kingdom to earth. And so here you have in Mark chapter 9, if you want to put it up, it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. He was changed. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Let me just pause there. You know, you see this. His clothes are changed. His appearance has changed. This isn't like Moses when he went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God and his face had a reflected glory. His face, too, began to shine. He put a veil on so people couldn't see this fading glory that he had. With Jesus, it's an intrinsic glory. It's, he was veiled in flesh, remember? This is the Godhead veiled in human flesh. And here for a moment on the holy mountain, that glory shines through and they see him. And they're, they're frightened. So Moses is there, Elijah's there, we go on. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened, and maybe he wanted to hold on to this moment. And then a cloud appeared and covered them. And this cloud is just like in the Old Testament when the cloud filled the temple. It's the Shekinah glory. It's the glory of God that comes and covers that mountain. And they hear a voice from the cloud that says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. And that statement made by God the Father, it's his voice. That statement brings together two very significant Old Testament texts. And the one is from Psalm 2, this is my son. It's a psalm about the king. It's a psalm about the Messiah who's going to come. It's a psalm about this king who's going to come to establish his kingdom, but also in judgment to defeat his foes. And the second passage, whom I love, this my chosen one in whom I delight, is Isaiah 42.1. It is in that context, the end of Isaiah, where God is talking about the suffering servant, the one who would die for our sins. And so you think about that, and what's going on here? God himself, God the Father, identified Jesus as the Messiah and as the suffering servant. He is the king, he is the judge, he's the one who's going to come, listen to him, listen to him. And that's why Peter went to this text in particular to point to the fact that Jesus is going to come again. What we saw in that transfiguration of Jesus was a fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets had written about, that his kingdom is going to come. And we saw it. We saw it for a moment in the glory that was revealed. 
You know, there are certain events in our life that make an impression on us. You know, when you think about things in your life that, that stand out, and I'm going to share a story that is in no way at all comparable to anything that I've said here about Jesus, but it's just a story about how certain events in our life make an impression on us, and we want to tell people about them. I was thinking back to when I was 10 years old, I got to see my first professional baseball game. And my sister, who was working down here as a teacher, invited me and my uh, next oldest sister to come on down, and we were going to see the twins play a baseball game. And I was so pumped. I mean, I, I would listen to the twins at night on the radio, you know. I'd lay in my bed trying to go to sleep, and I'd be listening to my heroes, you know, Armand Killebrew and Jim Cott, Jim Perry, all those guys. Well, I was going to be able to go to a game. And I'm 10, my next oldest sister Mary is 16, and I couldn't believe my parents agreed to this, but they said we could go, and they, they put us on the bus in Warren. We rode the bus to uh, Fargo, had to switch buses, and then uh, my sister was going to pick us up at the bus station in Minneapolis. Different times, wasn't it? You know, sending your kids out to do that. But it was July of 1965, the twins were playing the Yankees just before the All-Star break. And if you know anything about that season, I mean, even Mark Rosen wrote about it, that that was a turning point in the twin season. They would end up beating the Yankees 3-1 to one in that series. And I'm sitting there in the stands, the old Mets stadium, and I'm seeing in real life, you know, Bob Allison, Jim Cotton, Armand Killebrew, Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, you know, all the greats that are kind of legends in baseball. And in that game... Harmon Killebrew hit a two-run home run in the bottom of the ninth to give the Twins a 6-5 to five win. I was in heaven. I mean, that was really exciting, and I could not wait to get home to tell my friends what I had seen and heard. Now, that's just, that's, you know, insignificant. I mean, as an event compared to what we're talking about here in the Scripture, but that same attitude is there that when you see something, that is so incredible, so exciting for you. You can't wait to tell somebody what you saw and heard. And the disciples, when they talked about Jesus, they said, you know, what we've seen with our own eyes, what we heard with our ears, what our hands have handled, we proclaim to you concerning Jesus Christ so that you might have fellowship with the Father and fellowship with us and fellowship with his Son. They were eyewitnesses. But there's another thing that Peter says that we should pay attention to. He said in verse 18 that we have the word of the prophets. And he makes this statement that we have the word of the prophets made more certain. Why is that? What, why does he say that? Made more certain. What does that mean? Well, it is hard for us to overestimate the high regard that the Jews had for the Scripture. For the Jews, the word of God was a far greater authority than the voice of God or the witness of men. Because people could claim that they were speaking from the Lord, and throughout the Old Testament, you have these false prophets who claim that they had a vision from God, or they heard this, or they saw this, and they would make their own statements, thus says the Lord. So, how do you know? It'd be like people asking, well, so what? You have the apostles that were eyewitnesses. How do we know that they're not just making this up? You have the word of the prophets made more certain. You see, 
The reason the Jews regarded the word of God as a greater authority even than the voice of God or the witness of men was that it could be tested. The written word could be tested. And there were tests given in places like Deuteronomy 18 that said things like this. And you can put up the next 18 uh, verse 22, where it said that if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. If somebody says something that's contrary to what the scriptures have taught, don't listen to them. If somebody says something, claims to speak for the Lord, and it doesn't come true, he's a false prophet. And that's why in scripture you have things that were given to the prophets that were signs. There were near fulfillments and there were distant fulfillments. And the reason you knew you could trust the thing that's still off in the future was because of what God did in the present to confirm the word of the prophet. So you come to the Old Testament scriptures and what you find is there are over 300 references to the Messiah in the Old Testament. Josh McDowell in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, lists 61 of them. Okay, 61 of them. Now let me just read this kind of list to give you an idea. We won't look at every passage where they are, but you could do that if you took his book. But these were the things that were written from 1440 B.C., 1400 years before Christ was born, to 400 years before he was born, from Moses to Malachi. The Old Testament prophets said that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be a child or a seed of Abraham. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would be in the line of Jesse. He would be a son of David, and he would reign on David's throne forever. He would be called the Son of God. He would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He would be a prophet, a priest, a judge, a king. He would be preceded by a messenger. His ministry would begin in Galilee. Uh, the miracles he performed, this is Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, if you want to look at it. The miracles he would perform, he would open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, the lame would walk, the mute would speak. Pretty amazing. It talked about, they prophesied about his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and that he would be seated at the right hand of God the Father. They talked that he would be betrayed by a friend. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And the money would be used to buy a potter's field. He would be forsaken by the disciples, accused by false witnesses. He would be wounded, beaten, mocked, crucified with thieves. He would be hated without cause. His garments would be divided by casting lots. He would feel forsaken by God in that cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His bones would not be broken, but his side would be pierced. There would be darkness that would cover the land. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. All of that, all of that and more was in the Old Testament written hundreds of years before Christ was even born. Peter Stoner wrote an article called Science Speaks, and he said that the odds that any man might have fulfilled even just eight of those prophecies would be one in the 10 to the 17th power. Now that's a 10 with 17 zeros behind it. That's just too many zeros to even comprehend. So here's the illustration of that to give you an idea of how many zeros that would be. That'd be like taking the state of Texas, covering it 
two feet deep in silver dollars, marking one silver dollar that you're going to place out there, and then blindfolding a guy and telling him he could walk as far as he wants in any direction and pick that one silver dollar out of that state. It's just staggering to think about. It wouldn't have happened. I mean, I I make this statement that these prophecies either were given by the inspiration of God or the prophets were very, very lucky in what they wrote. They had a one in 10 to the 17th chance that eight of them would come true, but all of them came true in Jesus Christ. Archaeology has time and time again confirmed the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible as a historical record. There are times when people have questions, they doubt, and they raise issues that we maybe don't have the confirmation of yet, but just wait, give us time, you know, it's that kind of thing. And when you look at the Bible, say, compared to the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon claims to be a history of this uh, continent, you know, and native peoples and tribes that were here. You cannot line up anything with history or you can't line up the rivers or the cities or the streams. But you take the Bible and there's a Jerusalem. And you can go to Jerusalem today. You can go to the Jordan River. You can go to Masada. You can go to Galilee. You can go to these places. You can walk where Jesus walked. It is all rooted and grounded in history. And God invites us to examine the evidence and to believe. And then thirdly, what this text affirms and is that what the Bible claims about itself is that the word of the apostles and the word of the prophets is the word of God. That there really is one author behind it all, and that is God. God is the author of Scripture. And the voice that the apostles heard and the voice that the prophets heard is the same voice. It's the voice of God. Jesus affirmed that when he was tempted by Satan and he said, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now he's quoting Moses, what Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy, and he is calling that the word of God, the scriptures, and saying that we don't live by this bread alone as our sustenance, but we live on the words that come from the mouth of God, referring to the Old Testament. In Matthew 24, 35, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And now he is calling this my word, my word, which is eternal and authoritative. And Peter says in this passage in verse 20, that above all, above all means, hey, this is of first importance, is like underline this, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by the prophet's own interpretation. It did not originate in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The author of Scripture is God. That is its origin. Now, we know that God used over 40 different human authors to write these different books, 66 books in our Bible. 
And it was not a mechanical dictation. They were not like secretaries, you know, where somebody's dictating and say, write this down, you know, and they're going, oh, this is pretty good. You know, this is, this is great, you know. There were times when the prophets would say, thus says the Lord, and they got that directly, and they quoted what the Lord had said to them and doing it that way. But the primary way God worked was through their own personalities and their own writing styles and their own experiences. So what they wrote was exactly what God wanted to say. He worked through them. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit who governed this whole process of inspiration. The word there for carried along is the word pharaoh. It's interesting, in English, we get our word fairy from it. Fairy. They were ferried to their destination. They were carried along by the Spirit of God who directed what they wrote so that what came out was exactly what God wanted to say. His word is authoritative. His word is inerrant. His word is inspired. It is God-breathed, Paul tells us, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. He tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. It comes from him, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why we study it. That's why we speak from it every Sunday. It's why this book is central to our faith. Now, why is all of this important? Well, let me just quickly give you three points as we conclude this. Number one, greater confidence in Scripture leads to greater boldness. Greater confidence in Scripture leads to greater boldness. How can we share our faith effectively if we really don't believe it or if we have doubts about it ourselves? But the more we study and learn, the greater our confidence grows and the greater our boldness is. You know, for me, studying these things, even in those years in college and reading a book like Evidence That Demands a Verdict, it was so helpful for me. It was like pylons being driven down in my faith, step by step by step, that just anchored my faith and gave me such confidence that I'm going, you know, if we can't believe this book, the Bible, we can't believe any book in history. I mean, there is so much credibility. There is so much that if you come to this book with an open mind and you'll examine the evidence and you'll listen to what it says and you think about that, that this book was written over 1,500 years and you look at the timing and dates that have been confirmed and you will stand in amazement. It's why many skeptics have come to the Bible and been converted because they came wanting to disprove it, but as they looked at the evidence, they could not dispute it. Greater confidence in Scripture leads to greater boldness. Secondly, greater confidence in Scripture leads to greater obedience. What we begin to see and understand is, again, this deep conviction that if Jesus Christ is Lord and he died for you and me, then there is nothing too great that we could give to him. It's all for him. It's all for him and for his glory. He is Lord. He is the king over all kings. He's going to come again, and one day we will stand in his presence, and we will reign with him in eternity, and he has work for us to do, and we will worship him. I mean, all of these things that are yet to come, so if, if we don't experience it all in this life, that's okay. 
Eternity's coming. If this life seems short, that's okay, because there's a new world coming that's going to be better by far. And if people are lost without Christ, then how can I not tell my family, my friends, my co-workers about Jesus? Because they need to know him too. And thirdly, what we see is that evidence alone will not bring someone to faith. As good as evidence may be, it alone will not bring someone to faith. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God and uses the historical evidence for faith to bring people to Christ. So just like the apostles pointed to things and said we were eyewitnesses, we bring out the evidence for faith. We share that there are reasons to believe. And we use the Scripture, and we share it in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we help people to look at the evidence and to see for themselves that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Shoo, I did it. No, <laughs> that is a lot to cover. And um, I just want to encourage you to keep digging into that, though, and we're going to come back to that again. And I'm praying that that conference works out because I think that would be a wonderful event for our church. As we close today, we don't have a final song, so I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'll just close with our benediction, and then you'll be dismissed. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.